Kia ora, morning. If you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me? We're actually going to start in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, and then we'll come to our text in the book of James as we continue to consider what faith looks like on the ground, how faith working its way out in wisdom. My name is Jeremy. For those I have, who I haven't met, I'm one of the elders around here, and it's a real privilege to be with you this morning. Um, a lot of commentators and people who are looking around at the church at the moment and seeing a number of times the church is uh, getting a lot of publicity uh, are realizing that not all publicity is good publicity. And some of them are saying perhaps the church is having a little bit of a reckoning at the moment. That some of the things that we have focused on in the last maybe three or four decades are coming a little bit to fruition. And I think that's an interesting thing for us to ponder and think about what it is that we are called to focus on. And so I want to start with uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, a, a part here where he calls us to be thinking about something to watch out for. Now, a number of people have uh, noticed that there's a lot of similarity between James or that James draws a lot out of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He uses a, a, a metaphors and um, lines of thinking that are very similar into the Sermon on the Mount, and um, this is one of those areas. And he often uses things in a black and white kind of way, a binary sort of idea. You've got to choose one or the other. And Jesus does this on the end of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He goes, well, there's two gates, You've got, to, you've got to choose one of them to go through. There's two roads. You've got to choose one of them to walk along. There's two places here that you could build a house on. You've got to choose where you're going to put your foundation for your house on, right? So Jesus gives this binary kind of idea. And in the mixed as he's saying this idea that you've got to choose one or sort of the other, he says, I want you to watch out for something. Now, one of the things he says, there will be false disciples, very interesting. He says, there will be people who come to Jesus one day and stand and go, man, look at all those things I did for you in your name, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Who are you? I don't know you. You actually did things not in my name, but for yourself. Whew. And here's another one here in Matthew 7, in verse 15. Oh, that's getting a bit small, that writing. <clears throat> Watch out for false prophets. Listen to this. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Here's my question to kind of frame what we're going to talk about. It's not an easy question. How would you tell a wolf in sheep's clothing? Because it's an important detail there that he says there. This one in sheep's clothing looks like a sheep, <laughs> right? Acts like a sheep. Talks like a sheep. Right? It's the duck analogy, isn't it? But he's saying it's not a sheep. 
Underneath it, he says, it's a ferocious wolf. Now, we don't have wolves in New Zealand, but we've watched enough movies to know that a wolf is a predator. It prowls around wanting to devour and cause destruction. Jesus is using evocative language here. He's not saying in society, in community. He's actually saying in your churches, in your places, you will have people who will use the name of Jesus, who will talk and look exactly like you. But underneath it, they have a motivation for causing division and destruction. And so this is, this is not some superficial question we're asking here. <laughs> Right? This is a critical question. I'm going to quote a little bit later um, out of a book by a guy called Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a, a famous 18th century American philosopher, thinker, theologian, but he was at his heart, he loved the local church and he loved evangelizing and seeing people come to faith. And he just said, he said, a number, of, he ultimately wrote a book called Thoughts on Revival. And what he was finding was this, he said, <clears throat> three or four times, he said, I saw revival start to happen. That is, I saw people who were a long way away from God draw closer. I saw those who were close to God cross over the line and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he said, I saw sleepy Christians wake up, right? I love that idea. Revival, right? But he said, Every single time it started to happen, it was crushed. He said it was crushed exactly the same way each time because there were fights and quarrels in the church community. And it was based on people with pride. I'm jumping ahead now. And some people who had allowed the wolves to roam within their community. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I hope you understand this will be a little bit heavier in some senses, but I, pl I pray you understand why this is so important for us to consider this today. And in many ways, I think it's timely for our day. I, 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 there's no doubt that there's more fighting and quarreling that we are seeing, and we are very naive if we do not think that that is present in our churches. Come with me to, to the book of James. And we're going to um, start in chapter 3. Our main passage is chapters 4, the verses in chapters 4, 1 to 6. But this is, um, uh, on one level, a hard passage to read. But on another level, it is one of the most insightful pieces of literature about the human condition that you will ever hope to read. It, it speaks into the depths of our soul and the depths of our being. It goes beyond what you see in the iceberg and it looks underneath and looks at our motivations. And we need to um, deeply think about what James is calling us to. So in James chapter 3, and we're in verse 13, which is the text we did last week, but I want, I want you to hear it in its full sense so we get the context of it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in a humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For we have envy and selfish ambition. There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 1. Great question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And even when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that may you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Let me pray. Father, as we come to this text, would you give us ears to hear? soft hearts that are prepared for you to speak to us in ways that may be uncomfortable but ultimately are healing and hopeful. Amen. All right, what I want to do, I've got my whiteboard back. Yay! love my whiteboard. If you can't quite see it from the back, I'll leave it up. You can come up later and have a look through it. But what I want to do is, is graphically show you how James lays this out and then we'll think of some concepts that sit within it. So the first of all, um, if you see the, think of it as the iceberg above, he sees two things here. He sees, um, he sees something that's going on he calls killing or murder. And then he sees something else that he calls fighting and quarreling. Right? Can you see that? Verse... Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. So he said, this is what you see, visibly see going on. And so you're asking the question, well, well what is happening? And what does he say there in verse 2 that, that might give us a hint about what's going on that causes it? What are some of the words that he uses? You desire. Okay. So he says, you desire, right? What else does he say? Covet. Okay. So he said, there's a, a desiring for something, and there's a coveting for something. But what does he say about those desires and longings or coveting for? What's the problem there that sits in it? The first bit, sorry? Evil. Evil, yeah. So there's a whole lot of evil that sort of sits in there that you're kind of seeing. 
but I'm desiring, I'm coveting, but, but there's an issue for me. What is it? I can't get it, right? Now, he doesn't actually explain deliberately there in those, well, those two verses there. He doesn't say exactly what it is that I'm desiring and longing for that causes me to fight or quarrel. But we can get from the, the, the last part of chapter 3 in the context that he's talking about is he's saying uh, a, a key part of it is this idea of ambition or um, envy. He's saying you, you, you envy. There's something you desire that you long for. You're, you're envying other people or you're ambitious wanting to come over top of people. You want, you want recognition. <laughs> That's ambition what it is. You want people to think greatly of you, right? Or you're envious. You come underneath and uh, you, 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 if other people have what you sort of want and you're unable to, to get it. And he says, so these things are driving you, that you're longing and wanting those things. Now, I, I find this framework, I've used it a number of times before, as, as I, I think these um, can be summarized in this idea of I want, I want power or approval or comfort or control. I want something in those. Power is, I love the, I, the concept of authority sort of over others. Approval is a huge one. I want people to think well of me. I want, I want comfort, right? I, I don't want my life to be difficult or complex. I want comfort and control, not con lol, control, um, right? Control is, um, is, is just kind of agency, but in my own little space, my own little world. And so amb ambition and envy are a beautiful way that he sort of, not beautiful, it's a terrible way, but a, a way that he describes what I'm trying to get at. And so I'm going to use it over here as a heading all the way here. This is about what we worship. What we think is the most critical thing in our lives, and um, we could use the term idols. The things that we put up on a pedestal and go, if I could just get that, my life would be complete if I could just have that, right? So we see this here in this desiring, this coveting. I can't get it. And because there's people blocking it, it doesn't matter how I treat them. So I'll fight with them. I'll quarrel with them. I'll get angry with them. And by the way, um, this word kill in um, James means, literally means that. You murder them. Now, I don't think this group of this church was going around murdering people. But I think if we connect it with what Jesus taught about teaching in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I tell you, when you harbor anger towards somebody else, when you want to take revenge, when you want to drag somebody down, right? You, you metaphorically want them gone and out of the way. And so when somebody is blocking you from what you want, then you will treat them and justify all sorts of bad behavior. Gossip and slander and rumor and criticism. And we're nice, good people. You know, we like to come here and show how we go. But often these are places where they happen in the secret, in the shadows, and the little conversations that sit in behind, and we just drop a thing in there about somebody else to make that other person think less of that other one. And we bring wolves like to hunt in packs, so they bring other people kind of with them and get them on their side to, to come around other people. 
You guys know what I'm talking about that happens within community. He's saying this is fighting and quarreling, and you treat people like you want them out of the way and gone. James is very real about it. But he says ultimately it comes back to a single word. He says pride. Because the orientation of your heart is toward self. So when we talk about envy, I want something for me. When I talk about ambition, I want something for me. It's centered in around pride. James repeatedly uses it in here. Pride sits underneath it. There's an orientation towards self. And so that means that I desire, that I covet, that I, I put up these things that, I'm, that I am after. And they sit there in this space. But there's an alternative. So we could call that wisdom from below. And we talked about how that can be the natural desire of our inner self. Nick talked about last week as the flesh. It can be the natural wisdom that the world operates and works with. We live in a space where ambition, wow, that's good, good on you. Envy, that's fine. Long for things. You deserve them. Da, 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 da. The world is happy to work in this way. This is the wisdom our world operates in. And there was a third way. It says there's demonic forces that sit there and play. The thief who longs to you know, kill and destroy, right? These are stoked in all sorts of areas. This is, this is the fight, the battle of where it sits because this is what we're told in the narrative of the world. But there's an alternative given in here. And just as pride is a posture or a state of the heart, the alternative starts in the same place. It is humility. You have to wrestle with what that means. But essentially, we confuse humility. We often confuse it with um, passivity or low self-esteem or whatever, but humility in the way the Bible is talking about is the orientation of your heart is to the other, right? Ultimately to God, but humility results in the orientation towards the other in the way that I live, the way that I think. Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Why? Because he humbled himself and Paul uses that in the context of thinking about how you treat others. There's a humility that comes from it. And we saw last week in um, chapter 3, verse 16, right? Um, he said, this, this looks, what that looks like on the ground is, first of all, it's pure. Then it's peaceable. And there's a bunch of others there. Submissive was an interesting word with it, a word that we need to recapture the proper meaning of it with it. But can you see, now what you see in the surface of what he's saying is revealing what is happening underneath here, this concept of humility. And so there's still a longing that sits here in the human heart, but because the human heart now is driven by humility and the thought of other, that God is sovereign, that Christ has sacrificially loved me in the way that he has, my longing now is different. My longing now is for righteousness, right? And if my longing now is for righteousness, that is right way of living, right um, way that I think about other people, right way that I think about God, if my longing is for that, then the behaviors that I see come in the, under the system. 
Are you with me? There's a couple of blank faces there. All right, a couple of nods. That's right. But can you see what he's doing here? He's saying, this is what you see here, right? But I want to show you what's happening around it. I want you to understand that this comes from this longing, but it's longing for the wrong things. And underneath this longing is because the orientation of my heart is incorrect. Now see how that plays out in verse, end of verse 2. Sorry, end of verse 3. Because it comes out in the way that we pray. <laughs> Sometimes you don't even pray. You're not getting what you want because you don't even ask. He says, but when you ask, when you pray, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures or passions, some of your, your translations may say. The word there is related to the word um, hedonism that we have today, Right? Hedonism, we understand, is this idea of self-pleasure. I just live for myself. I don't worry about all those other things as long as I'm kind of okay. That's the orientation of it. We even use God, thinking that God operates for me, rather than in the humility that comes with this. George MacDonald was a 19th century writer, and he said this once. He said, the one principle of hell is this, I am my own. The one principle of hell is this, I am my own. Tom Howard picked up that and said, the alternative is this, my life for yours. My life for yours. That's the two orientations that it teaches us that we have to choose between. Do I live with the pride and self-orientation or do I live with a posture of humility? Now we put that up here and James says, remember the context of what we're talking about. This is a letter to Christian churches. So we could look at that and go, yeah, that's how the world operates, that's great. Because none of us are on that top line there. We're all good. We're in church now. But that's not what James is talking about. James is putting this up and saying, see what you're looking at there? Both of those are an operation in your church. And, and the wolves who sit on that top line, that's all they ever live in is that top line. Oh, they're clever, <laughs> Right? You think you could recognize a wolf, no problem, but when they're covered in sheep's clothing, oh, they'll pray with you. <laughs> oh, they'll be, off, they'll be at every meeting, and they'll be out in all sorts of places. They're not easy to kind of recognize, but there's, he says there's a fruit that comes out of it in the way they sort of live. There's a question, another question that we'll come to in a moment, because the question is when we look at this, we see this in black and white, but, but we do know there's a whole lot of gray here as well, don't we? Because while he's saying there's, there's sheep and wolves in this sort of sense, I know that as a sheep that I can have wolfish behavior. And so we need to understand what, what would be the difference between knowing a true wolf and recognizing what wolfish behavior looks like. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. I want to come back to what Jonathan Edwards says because this is really important. When he looked at that and he looked at the way that pride operates within a church, and he gave six factors here. I'll work through them quickly. I'll put them up on our Facebook page. 
um, if you've got the courage to read them later. He said, here's six ways. He said, first I see spiritual pride makes you aware of others' faults. Then that more than of your own. See, humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than others. But, but pride elevates others' faults. Number two, pride, uh, <clears throat> pride leads you when you speak of others' faults to have an air of contempt and disdain. But humility, a humble person, means that whenever you do speak of others' faults, you only ever do it with grief and mercy. There's an understanding, oh, just by the grace of God go I. <laughs> right? Number three, pride leads you to quickly separate from people who you've criticized or who criticized you. That means you're cold to them or you avoid them. But spiritual humility means you stick with people even through difficult relationships. Number four, a proud person is dogmatic about every, um, is about every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because everything the proud person believes is major. <laughs> a proud person either loves to confront because they like winning or proud people sometimes refuse to confront because they don't like losing. They don't want the criticism controversy. But interesting enough, a humble person is able to confront it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? Because in humility, when you love others, you love righteousness, you long for God's movement into community, you, co you confront in a way that's truthful but loving. It doesn't mean that it'll always be received in that way, but there's a preparedness to it. And I, I, th I think this is an area where we often fall short we, we, just, we, we love to see people as good and nice and lovely, which, which is not a bad posture to do. Don't get me wrong. But it can lead us to think that everybody is just doing things always out of unselfish motives. And that's not true. Because Jesus is calling us. He's saying, watch out. And, and by the way, it, when Jesus taught that, he didn't say, all right, you wolves, <laughs> I'm coming after you. He's actually saying it for the sheep. And the reason he's saying it to the sheep is this, because wolves need naive and ignorant sheep to operate. Sheep that don't want to confront, that like to paper over, that prefer peacekeeping to confrontation. Wolves love that. In fact, they need it to operate. Wolves will die in a community if you lovingly confront them. Or when they come to you with a criticism, you go, you know what, how about we go and see that person that you're criticizing and we sit down together and we talk it out and we pray about it. When they come with the gossip or the rumor or whatever it is and you say, I, this isn't right, right? So, so Jesus is, like wolves don't generally change. I'm just being honest here. Wolves themselves very rarely change. They just, they'll go off to another church or they'll go off into another ministry. They'll find another group of people that they can, they can kind of devour. But sheep, right? 
This is one of the key ways that you tell the difference. A sheep, because they're operating ultimately through humility, it may take you a little bit sometimes, but when wolfish behavior is pointed out, in humility, you repent and you work it through. Where someone who primarily is a wolf, when you confront lovingly in truth, they're not interested. Right. They'll shut you off. Number five, a proud person either loves to confront, oh, sorry, no, number six. A proud person, this is really important, a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves. Here's the reason why proud people are filled with self-pity, because they're so sure that, that um, they know how life ought to go and be there. Sure, they deserve a good life, but humble people say, oh, you know what? I'm not so sure that I'm deserving all the time of things to be going in a particular way. And so they don't tend to be filled with a self-pity that's centred in on it. I remember a person once, they were talking in the, um, they were talking about, they just made a comment to somebody, they said, I just, I'm just not sure why I end up in the middle of all these you know, uh, divisions and, and issues that are kind of going on in the church. And um, if you peel it off, you realise exactly why they were wanting to be in the middle of the division and everything that's going on. Because they take everything through a self-orientated lens. And everything becomes impersonal. And they become enmeshed in situations that have nothing to do with them. These are damaging things that happen in our churches, in our communities. And by the way, this is not being judging. If you um, have to confront somebody or you have to be thinking in regard into this space, judging or judgmentalism is when you condemn a person. You see that behavior and then you just wipe them off. Or you say they're beyond kind of God's grace, however you sort of think in that. That's different from being discerning. Being discerning is thinking, how does behavior and attitudes and posture of the heart affect a wider community? And we're called to be discerning. That's what Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, let's keep going. We'll, we'll do some more of this next week. I know you guys will be keen to come back for some more of this. But I, 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 I want you to be thinking about this because it's, it's, it's critically important. Let's come to verse 5. Uh, sorry, verse 4. Just when you thought he might lighten things up again a bit, he gets to verse 4 and he goes... You adulterous people is probably what yours says. The actual word there is um, you adulteresses. Now explain what that is. He's using the feminine term and he's using it in plural, even though he's speaking to a male and female audience. And there's two reasons for that. One is he's picking up on a concept that runs through all of Scripture that's such an important one to understand there's a metaphor that runs through the Bible that God thinks himself as a husband to a bride. And he takes it seriously. 
He longs and yearns for the bride, Israel in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament, that they would love him back with a jealous, beautiful love. Now, we often say jealousy is always negative, but I tell you what, I jealously love my wife. She jealously loves me, <laughs> right? If I take my affections and I turn the, my affections onto somebody else, then she has a right to say, I jealously love for the affection directly from you. That's why adultery at its core is so harmful because it's, a, it's this relational idea. It's a covenant idea between people. And God uses this through Scripture. So when he comes here and he's going, your affections are towards self and pleasing self, it's like exactly the same as you being an adulterer. And God is this beautiful, loving, continual, covenantal, loving husband. And you rebel and turn your back and put your affections in other places. That's why the language is so strong. That's why he's saying when you've got friendship with the world, when you're seeking wisdom from below, it is exactly like adultery. Which helps us understand verse 5. It's a very hard verse to, to translate, but con I, I, the concept is this. It says there, Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And I take that to be the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in me. And it's such a beautiful picture that God has a jealous love for me that he wants me to return in affection for him. Right? This is so precious. That's why it's so, when we understand that, we see why it's so damaging, why James comes at this with aggressive language, because he wants you to understand the depth of call that God has for you and the requirement for us to return it. So in verse 6, in light of this jealous love that God has for you, he says, I just want you to have a posture back towards me because I have a grace that I long to pour into you. There was a painting done once of Niagara Falls, and Niagara Falls is one of the biggest waterfalls in the world, and there's just vast volumes of water pouring over top constantly, pouring, pouring, pouring down. And it was um, placed in a gallery, but it wasn't given a title. And so the people at the gallery, uh, someone at the gallery, uh, came up with a clever title, More to Follow. It was just this idea of thinking that not some static picture, that there's just this beautiful amount of water that continually flows and comes over this waterfall. Start of verse 6, he says there's more grace. There's more grace that wants to keep flowing, changing, shaping, removing your sin, replacing it with humility. God wants to keep doing that in your life. But did you see you have a choice? He says, God can't give you that grace when you're full of pride. The only way that you receive that grace, it's not a work. <laughs> 
It's a posture of your heart. It's the decision of your mind that I humbly come under God who graciously wants to pour out to me. And we know that that is centered on the person of Christ. We have to have this in here that I, in my humility, ultimately see that what I long for is Christ and his righteousness. He showed his sacrificial love for me when he died on the cross. You, you don't have to, have to ask the question anymore of whether God loves me because he displayed it on the cross when he spread out his arms and he died for you. And he proved the power of what he did on the cross when he rose again and rose physical life, but he says that's a picture of spiritual life. This is, this is about life, ultimate life for us. There's so much more to say in this, but I just wanted to cover today and help us to see what James is saying in a black and white space. And then I want us to go away and ponder and let this sit in us, in our own lives, in our relationships, in your relationship with God, how you think about Christ, what you're desiring in your life, the way you speak, the people that you hang out with, the way that you talk about others. James puts it starkly because he wants us to make wise choices, that we would be pure, peaceable people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this insightful word in your scripture. It's uncomfortable for us because we know that we wrestle with pride. We find it hard to give up self, give up sovereignty to you, become peaceable towards others. But Lord, you call us to that not only for our own sakes, but for the sakes of our community. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us this week as we ponder this and think about what this looks like. Maybe there's conversations that we need to have with people that, hmm, I don't know, Lord, there's behavior there that looks more like a wolf than looks more like a sheep. And as James says at the end there, there's a preciousness about bringing somebody back from that place. Would we be that within our community? Would you just speak to our hearts and show us in our lives those places where we, where we need to do this work? But thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the grace that you give us, <laughs> for, the, for the love that you talk about in this passage that you jealously love us, long for us to return that love in appropriate ways and live out that way in righteousness in our lives. Mm -hmm. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.